Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Welcome to episode 67. This is our second episode on unity and diversity in the Catholic Church. In our last episode, we talked about the need for unity within the Church, that as Catholics we need to be wholly united to each other. So just a brief recap, unity doesn't mean that we all look and act and think exactly the same in every way all the time. There is a healthy and legitimate diversity of vocations and interests and ways of living out our Catholicism that can exist within the church. But when it comes to our one shared faith and to our love for one another, we should all be completely united as a single body, the mystical body of Christ. And actually, this is something that we didn't touch on in the last episode, but it is worth noting that unity doesn't just mean remaining united to the teachings of the church and to the magisterium and the pope. It also means being united to one another as individuals. So in our last episode, we ended with the idea that we all have one shared vocation, a vocation to holiness. And part of our mission as Christians is to encourage each other in that vocation, to help each other be holy, to pray for each other, even to correct each other with charity when we can see someone that we love headed in the wrong direction. So this is our first calling as Catholics. We need to be united to each other. St. Thomas Aquinas talks about the order of charity, the need for us to put God first before all things. He's number one. And then next to love and look after the people that he has put closest to us. So the members of our families, the people in our faith community. But Beyond that call to unity within the church, we have also received a mission to seek unity with others outside of the Catholic faith. In Matthew 28, 19 to 20, Jesus tells his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So this is a mission that has been explicitly given to us by Jesus. We are called to bring the gospel to others who don't share our faith. As Catholics, we believe that the church established by Jesus Christ is the Catholic church, and that is the one true church. So we want to create opportunities for other people to discover the joy that comes with being Catholic. So in this episode, we're going to think about this mission of evangelization. We're first going to think about the role of the institutional church and how the Catholic church can and does create opportunities, kind of official opportunities for dialogue with other denominations and religions. And then we're going to think about these ideas as they relate to the individual. So what can I personally do to bring the gospel to others? So beginning with the mission of the church on a kind of grander scale, how does the Catholic church, as well as individual dioceses, parishes and groups within the church, encourage dialogue with other denominations and religions? So the project of seeking unity and dialogue with other Christian denominations, so non-Catholic Christians, that's referred to as ecumenism. Ecumenism is a fancy word that just means reaching out to Christians who are not in full communion with the Catholic Church. In his encyclical Ut Unum Sint, Pope St. John Paul II tells us that ecumenism 
is actually an integral part of our Christian mission. He says, It is not just some sort of appendix which is added to the church's traditional activity. Rather, ecumenism is an organic part of her life and work, and consequently must pervade all that she is and does. When Jesus first founded his church, he founded one church. So not many churches. And he prayed to God the Father that all should be one. It was not his vision for the Christian religion to be divided into denominations and to disagree on really important doctrinal points. So this desire for unity, not just between Catholics but with all Christians, is really important. One of the active projects of the Catholic Church is to try to repair the division that has come about through things like the Protestant Reformation. So that's ecumenism. And then when we talk about engaging with people from other religions who aren't Christian, we use a different word. We call it interfaith dialogue. So this relates to our dialogue with people who aren't Christian at all. Now, both of these projects, ecumenism and interfaith dialogue, are super important to the Catholic Church. And the goal of both of them is to listen respectfully to others, to understand their beliefs and maintain their right to freedom of religion, while also proclaiming the gospel. So what do ecumenism and interfaith dialogue actually look like tangibly? Well, as a way into answering that question, let's first think about what these things are not. So firstly, ecumenism and interfaith dialogue are not the same as relativism. They don't mean treating all religions as exactly the same or watering down the differences between us. Although we want to reach out to other faiths and denominations, we don't want to go so far that we no longer affirm our belief that the Catholic Church offers the fullness of truth. So Pope John Paul II writes that it is not a question of altering the deposit of faith, changing the meaning of dogmas, eliminating essential words from them, accommodating truth to the preferences of a particular age, or suppressing certain articles of the creed. The unity willed by God can be attained only by adherence to all the content of revealed faith in its entirety. In matters of faith, compromise is in contradiction with God who is truth. So those are some really strong words. Basically what he's saying is that we always need to maintain the full truth of the Catholic faith. We don't compromise on the truth. Secondly, though, on the flip side, ecumenism and interfaith dialogue also does not mean forcing Catholicism onto other people or not respecting their religious freedom. In the Vatican II document Dignitatis Humanae, it says, The human person has a right to religious freedom. All should have such immunity from coercion by individuals or by groups or by any human power that no one should be forced to act against his conscience in religious matters nor prevented from acting according to his conscience. So we also don't ever want to impose on other people's religious freedom. The Catholic Church is never going to go around being like, everyone has to be Catholic. Or to have kind of official dialogue with people where we're like beating them over the head with Catholicism and trying to force them to agree with us. So how do we avoid these two ends of the spectrum, relativism and coercion? Well, to answer that question, we might think about, kind of on a smaller scale, how we would talk to an individual person who doesn't agree with us. So imagine that you're having a conversation with a friend about a really important topic, say euthanasia. Now you go into this conversation with a really clear and solid set of beliefs. 
You're not going in unsure or still figuring out the truth. You've spent a long time thinking about it and praying and researching and you've arrived at a firm conviction that euthanasia is wrong. So you're not about to bend on that. You're not going into the conversation being like, look, might change my mind. No, you're going to hold fast to what you believe is true. However, you are aware that your friend is totally convinced that euthanasia can actually be a good thing. Now, ultimately, of course, you would like your friend to agree with you. But if you go in there all guns blazing and you beat them over the head with it and try to compel them to agree with you, chances are they're just going to shut down and you're going to push them away. But on the flip side, if you go in with an attitude of like, oh, well, you know, my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth and it doesn't really matter, then not only are you not going to make much progress, you're also going to end up betraying your own beliefs, your own belief that this is objectively wrong. So what do you do? Well, the first thing to do is to listen, sit with your friend and really try to understand where they're coming from. Make sure that you're not misrepresenting their beliefs, that you really get what they believe and why they believe it. And then the second thing is to find common ground because 99% of the time it will be there. And finding common ground is not the same as compromising. It's finding those things that you do actually agree on. Because if you're having a conversation where you're both sort of like, say you want to play a game of football and you're both standing on opposite football fields, you can't play a game. You have to wait until you're on some kind of common ground so that you can actually start to have that discussion. So maybe you and your friend can agree that, okay, we need better palliative care. Or maybe you agree that it's important not to unnecessarily prolong someone's suffering. So notice how this isn't us finding compromises. It's not us saying, oh, well, I can change what I think and you change what you think. We're saying, okay, where are the areas where we can actually connect? Because without that connection, we kind of can't move forward. There's nowhere to go from there. So finding common ground. And then from that place of mutual understanding and connection, you can find a way to move forward. And maybe you won't change that person's mind in one conversation. In fact, you probably won't. But you might open up a path that eventually leads to them accepting some aspects of your position or at least the two of you walk away understanding and appreciating why the other person thinks the way that they do. It's kind of like a baby steps approach. So if we return to the question of ecumenism and interfaith dialogue, we can see the same thing happening. This is what the Catholic Church does when she engages with other faiths. She creates opportunities for different churches and denominations to sit and talk and listen to each other, to explain or express their own beliefs, and then to find a path forward together where possible without ever compromising on the truth. So a really great example of ecumenical dialogue is the 1999 Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification. So this was a joint statement that was made by both the Catholic and Lutheran churches. Basically, Catholics and Lutherans came together and they spent a really long time discussing the question of justification. What does it mean to be justified? What does it mean to be saved? Are we saved by faith alone or by good works or by some combination of the two? And obviously, this is a really important question because it was right at the heart of the Protestant Reformation. So after lots of discussion, Catholics and Lutherans realized that actually for like the last 500 years, we've kind of been talking past each other. And actually, we do agree that true faith in God does save us. But with that faith must also come good works. So that's actually a point that we can agree on and move forward from. So notice how in this instance, A... 
we didn't come to an agreement on every single thing, right? It's not like the Lutheran church came into full communion with the Catholic church, but tangible progress was still made towards unity. We found common ground and moved forward from there. And then B, the Catholic church did not compromise on the truth. It's not like we said, oh, well, I guess we can kind of change our doctrine a bit and you change yours a bit and then we'll agree. No, instead it was about sitting, listening, clarifying our own points of view, finding common ground, and then seeing how we can move forward. Now, when it comes to interfaith dialogue, obviously the path to unity there looks a little bit different because we don't share those same core fundamental beliefs that Jesus is God and salvation comes through him, etc. So while we still have that same process of listening to each other and finding common ground, finding a way forward, there's also this added element which we refer to as proclamation. So proclamation refers to proclaiming the truth of the gospel with respect and while upholding the right of others to freedom of religion. So a really good example of a kind of interfaith encounter is the 1986 Day of Prayer for Peace in Assisi. This was a day of prayer that was organized by Pope St. John Paul II in which he invited all of the heads of the world's major religions to come together in unity and pray for peace. Now, on this day of prayer, each religious group was given time to pray in the same vicinity as each other, but separately. So they each said their own prayers. And at one point, they all went to their own places of worship to pray. And then at the end of the day, they came together to meditate together on the need for peace and to call for peace together. Now, if you read John Paul II's closing address from that day of prayer, one of the first things he says in that address is he reaffirms the Christian belief that Jesus Christ is the one true Lord and Savior. And then he also extends an invitation to the other faiths to engage in dialogue with the Catholic Church. So the striking thing about this encounter was that, first of all, John Paul II found a way to seek a kind of common ground between religions without becoming relativistic. So it's not like John Paul II said, oh, well, we're all going to come together and pray in the same way. Like first, everyone is going to say an Our Father, and then we'll all say a Jewish prayer and then a Muslim prayer because all religions are essentially the same. No, everyone was united in prayer, but there was a clear distinction. There was a respect for an acknowledgement of the different beliefs that were there. Secondly, the Pope proclaimed the gospel, right? He, he proclaimed his belief that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior without forcing that belief on anyone. And then thirdly, he invited dialogue with other faiths. So in this example, we can see this twofold aim of dialogue and proclamation. Interfaith dialogue, yes, it's about finding a common ground, but never to the point where we ignore or downplay our differences or we neglect our mission to proclaim the gospel. Now, this project of seeking unity with people outside our faith doesn't just fall to the institutional church. It also falls to each of us as individuals to spread the gospel to people in our everyday lives. And we call this mission apostolate. In 1965, the Second Vatican Council published a decree called, and this one's really hard to pronounce, so bear with, Apostolicum Actuositatem, <laughs> nailed it, which is a decree on the apostolate of the laity. So laity meaning the everyday person in the Catholic Church, not priests and religious. In this document, it says, Our own time requires of the laity no less zeal. In fact, modern conditions demand that their apostolate be broadened and intensified. 
So we all have an urgent, very real task to bring Christ to other people in the world. That's the responsibility of every single one of us. An apostolate is so important because lay people can often reach areas where the clergy and the institutional bodies of the church can't on their own. Like we can go to parties and meet people at work and school and university in our everyday lives. Every single one of us can and should spread the gospel wherever we're placed in the world. So what does it mean to be an apostle? Because that's what apostolate is. It's just being an apostle in the world. Well, first and foremost, it means just being ourselves, being a living witness to the truth of the gospel in the way that we live our faith in our everyday lives. We cannot underestimate the good that we can do when we simply live our lives as Catholics in the world. I know of this girl once who was a university student and a Catholic. And one day she was like hanging out with all her friends and they were all atheists. They're all at uni hanging out. And the time came for her to head to mass because there was a daily mass on campus. So she got up and she started packing up her stuff. And her friends were like, where are you going? She was like, oh, I'm going to mass. And her friends were totally confused. They were like, what? But it's a weekday. It's not Sunday. Why are you going to church? And this girl was like, yeah, well, actually, in the Catholic Church, we can go to Mass every day of the week. We don't just have to go on Sundays. And then she told them how there's like a chapel on campus and they had daily Mass, etc. And so these friends were a little bit taken aback, but they were cool with it. Like, I mean, it's one of the advantages of living in a world that's really into tolerance. People are like, oh, well, I guess I better tolerate this too. Anyway, so a few weeks later, this girl is hanging out with the same group of friends, except this time there are a few new people sitting with the group. So time for mass comes rolling around and this girl starts packing up her stuff and walking away. And as she can walk away, she can hear her friends explaining to the new people where she's going. They're like, yeah, did you know that you can actually go to mass every day? Like you don't actually, just, you don't just have to go on Sundays. And actually there's a chapel on this campus and they have daily mass and they're like telling them the whole thing. So for these people, I mean, okay, maybe they're not going to convert to Christianity on the spot, but they've been introduced to the idea of faith, to the idea that you can go to mass during the week. And that's an idea that they might not have encountered anywhere else in their lives. And maybe they're not going to have some radical turnaround, but that's planting a seed that would not have otherwise been planted. Maybe they won't encounter those ideas anywhere else. So that's just one example, but there are many other situations that we might find ourselves in where people notice that we are not participating in workplace gossip or we're being kind to others or we're really joyful even when things are going badly. Whatever it is, just our presence in the world can be a witness to the truth of the gospel. Now, just like with ecumenism, apostolate involves dialoguing with people who don't share our faith. Now, the first step there is that we have to actually have friends who don't share our faith. (laughs) As Catholics, or I mean, even just as people in general, it's so easy to stay in our safe little bubble where we only hang out with people who think the same things as us. And we can kind of end up in this self-affirming loop where it's very comfortable. However, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith says in a letter to bishops that the church is not a reality closed in on herself. Rather, she is permanently open to missionary and ecumenical endeavor. So this is a question that we can ask ourselves. How many people do I know who are different from me? Do I have friends and not just acquaintances, people I incidentally rub shoulders with at school or work, 
friends? Do I get close to people who are non-Catholic and non-Christian? Do I have friends who are maybe in a same-sex relationship or they're living with their partners or they have different opinions on important topics? Do I really know how to love those people, to listen to them, to deeply understand their opinions and their lives and their concerns while still maintaining and proclaiming the truth of my faith? So this is the second kind of arm of apostolate. It's not just about being a witness to the gospel with our actions. It's also about friendship, personal friendship, getting to know and love people who don't share our faith. Now, this can be kind of a scary idea because we might worry that if we get too close to people who are different from us, we could end up being influenced by them. We might kind of catch their beliefs, as it were. And In one sense, this is not an unreasonable concern. It's true that we do tend to be influenced by the people we spend the most time with. So to answer that concern, let's turn to my favorite thing, which is an analogy. So imagine that you are in a really strong, sturdy, safe castle and outside the castle walls, there's like some kind of battle going on and there are people in the thick of it who really need your help. They're facing some kind of threat or danger and they need your help and it's help that you can give. However, there's also a bunch of dangers outside and you know that if you go out there into the battle, you're going to have to face those dangers. So in that situation, you have a few options. Option number one is you stay inside the castle where it's safe and you know that nothing is going to get you. And you could do that, but then the people outside aren't going to get any help. Option two is you throw yourself out there into the breach with no preparation and no armor. You just go running out completely defenseless and then you immediately get killed by like an orc because you have nothing to defend yourself with. Okay, that's option two. Option three is that you put on some armor. You put on a great big fat suit of armor and you pick up your big old sword and your shield and then you know that you can safely go out there and all those arrows are going to be like pinging off you and of course you still have to remain vigilant but it's much less likely that you're going to get killed by an orc. So it's the same with us. Yes, if we go out into the world and try to engage with people who don't agree with us, we're going to come up against ideas and influences that might threaten our faith. But the solution isn't to remain hiding inside our little bubble or to just fling ourselves unprepared into difficult conversations and situations. Instead, we need to put on armor. So what does that armor look like? Well, a few things. One, formation. In other words, really deeply getting to know our faith. If we were to go out into battle without really understanding what we believe, then that's the equivalent of running out of the castle in a t-shirt. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone has to be a theologian, but it does mean that we have to make an active, consistent effort to understand our faith better. So maybe there's like a topic that keeps coming up in conversation with our friends or it's kind of in the zeitgeist and we need to understand it better. So we go away and we read up on that topic and we talk to someone knowledgeable and we find out what the church teaches and we prepare ourselves so that we can have that conversation with our friends. Another really important element of our armor is our personal relationship with God, which is strengthened through prayer and the sacraments. Our relationship with God will help us in all of the ways, but some in particular. 
First of all, it will give us the motivation to actually go out and spread the gospel in the first place. If you're sitting in that castle and some random person comes up to you and is like, someone out there needs your help. Okay, maybe you'll be motivated to go out and help them, but you might just as easily be like, eh, it's warm in here. But let's say that the love of your life Aragorn comes up to you and he's like, Caitlin, you have to help me. Merry and Pippin are out there and they need your help. Okay, in that situation, I'm getting my armor on. You're much more likely to go out there and do something if you love the person who's given you the mission and you love the people that you're going to help. So it's the same with us. When we love God and he gives us a mission, we're much more likely to want to carry it out. And when we foster that love of God, God will enlarge our hearts so that we grow to love other people, even people we've never met before. And that love will compel us to reach out to them. So Pope John Paul II kind of summarizes this when he says, love gives rise to the desire for unity. Our love for God will also give us an incentive to hold fast to our beliefs, even when we're in the midst of battle. Because if we have a personal relationship with him, then they're not just abstract beliefs. It's not like a bunch of rules that we have to follow. And then we get out into the world and we're like, oh man, this all looks so much more fun. I'm going to forget what I was taught. No, it's not just a series of rules. We have a personal relationship with God himself. Now, the other thing that prayer and the sacraments does is that it provides us with the help that we need to spread the gospel effectively. In a Vatican II document, which is also difficult to pronounce, Unitatis Redintegratio, I think I got that right, It says, it is the Holy Spirit dwelling in those who believe, who brings about that wonderful communion of the faithful. He brings them into union with Christ so that he is the principle of the church's unity. Ultimately, even though we are the instruments, it's God who is doing the work. If we are trying to help others to get to know God, we need to rely on the grace of the Holy Spirit. We can do all of the study and receive all the formation in the world and know all of the information. But if we're not making room for the Holy Spirit to act in us by praying regularly and receiving the sacraments regularly, then we're not going to get very far. A third thing that's going to help us kind of arm up is community, especially if we are mixing a lot with people who don't agree with us or who live a very different lifestyle to us. It can be really important to have roots that we can sort of return to and receive nourishment from. It's very difficult to do that work of evangelization if we're totally isolated and we don't have anyone supporting us. And I say this especially to people who are new to the Catholic faith and might not have many people around them who share that faith. The zeal to spread the gospels is so important, but we also need to be anchored in relationships with people who can support us. So a parish community or a group of friends who share our faith and who can encourage and strengthen us. I know just speaking personally, going to a high school where I was like the only Catholic and then going to uni where all my friends were atheists, being able to receive weekly formation, going to a girls club, going somewhere where like I was actually being in touch with a community of other Catholics. It was really helpful because I'd be like, oh yeah, that's right. There are other people in the world who, you know, understand where I'm coming from and they can help me and they can kind of support me. So super important. So these things, prayer, the sacraments, formation and community, these things will be our armor. They root us in our faith so that we can then safely go out in the world and share the gospel with others. John Paul II has this great image. He says that evangelization and ecumenism must be like the fruit born of a healthy and flourishing tree, which grows to its full stature. So apostolate is the fruit. It's the fruit of a deep, strong, well-nourished faith. 
Now, here's a cool little kind of paradox for us to end on, because we're talking about like arming up, right, and protecting ourselves from the world. And like earlier, we talked about how we don't compromise on the truth, etc. And that can sound like we're being a little bit kind of close-minded, um, like we're we're sort of um, putting a barrier between ourselves and other people, and maybe we're not actually really being open to them. But but here is a beautiful, wonderful, true paradox. The stronger our armor is, the more we know our faith, the deeper our relationship with God is, the more we will actually be able to remain open to other people. We will be more open to others the stronger our faith is, the stronger our armor is. And that sounds crazy, but let's think about it. Okay, let's say that you're a Catholic and you believe that the Catholic Church is the true church, you believe what the church teaches, but you don't actually really understand your faith on a very deep level and maybe you don't have a very deep um, kind of mature relationship with God. So your knowledge of Catholicism is pretty basic and pretty superficial. Now imagine that you get into a conversation with an atheist friend of yours and this atheist friend is making a whole bunch of arguments telling you why Catholicism is wrong and why there is no God. And because you don't know much about your faith, you really can't defend yourself. You don't really have an answer to any of your friend's questions. Now in that situation, you're probably going to have one of two options. The first is to just kind of fall in with what your friend is saying, because you don't really have any way of resisting. Like you might just be like, well, that sounds pretty convincing, actually. So I guess I'll just go along with what you're saying. Option number two is say that you really, really don't want to give up your faith, even though you can't support it and you can't kind of like explain why you believe what you believe, you still want to hold on to that faith. So what are you going to do? You're going to shut the conversation down, right? You're going to be like, I can't talk about this. I can't listen to you. Maybe you'll even get defensive and angry or shout that person down because you have no way of defending yourself against what they're saying. So you kind of can't be open. Now, imagine... You're in a situation where you're having that conversation with your friend who's an atheist, but you know your faith really well. You have a really deep, mature relationship with God. You spend time praying every day. You're receiving the sacraments. You get a lot of formation. So as soon as your atheist friend starts talking about what they believe, not only do you have a response to their questions and to their comments, but you also have the freedom to really genuinely listen to what they're saying, to actually be open to hearing their opinion, to just sit in that conversation and be open to your friend because you're grounded, right? You're centered. You know that you're you're anchored in your knowledge of your faith and your relationship with God. This is how we end up with like great saints like John Paul II, who are able to mingle with people who have completely different views from them because they have such a rich relationship with God and they know their faith so well. So when we talk about arming ourselves and never compromising on the truth, we're not talking about rigidity, right? We're not talking about like arbitrarily holding on to our opinions and being like, well, we can't let them go because they're our opinions. No, what we're talking about is a commitment, a deep, sincere commitment to pursue the truth, capital T truth. And this goes all the way back to like our first episodes, the fact that God is truth itself. So the more we get to know God, the more we're kind of anchored in truth. And so when we enter those conversations, it's not that we're arbitrarily clinging to our own opinions, it's that we never stop like almost relentlessly pursuing the truth. And the great thing about that is that, again, that means that we can be open, right? We can listen to our friends because even though the Catholic faith has the fullness of the truth, other people and other faiths 
like have access to truth as well. Like there are some going to be some things that we share and some things that are really true. And so when you have those conversations with your friends, you really are open to listening to what they're saying, because even though you're not going to like radically change your mind and become, you know, a Protestant or whatever, you still might learn something from your friend that deepens your own knowledge of the truth or adds nuance to it. So to reiterate this paradox, the deeper we go into our Catholic faith, the more we will actually be genuinely open to other people. And that is so crucial because that place of true openness to others, not just superficial pretending like we're all open, but we're not actually listening to each other, true openness to others and true love for them That is the foundation of unity, because think about it. We can't be united with people that we are closed off from. Okay, so that is all we have time for this episode. In our next episode, we're going to talk about a saint and I'm not going to tell you who she is. It's going to be a surprise, but I will give you some clues. And if you can guess who she is, then congratulations. Message me on Instagram and tell me and I'll give you a gold star. Um, She was a mum, She was a doctor. She was pro-life and she was also an awesome saint. Can't wait. I will talk to you in a fortnight. Okay, bye.